KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome in San Diego, it's Jade Hindman. Nick Hornby, known for best-selling novels like High Fidelity and About a Boy, will be in San Diego. We'll talk to him about his writing and how empathy and observation play a big role. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition, where we connect our communities through conversation. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Next week, Point Loma Nazarene University will host the 29th annual Writer Symposium by the Sea, where the art of writing will be explored with renowned authors. One of the writers appearing at this year's festival is Nick Hornby known for best-selling novels like High Fidelity and About a Boy, as well as several screenplays. Along with his masterful storytelling, his writing also evokes a love of pop culture of all kinds, be it music, literature, or even sports. And Nick Hornby joins me now. Nick, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you here. So let's talk about your most recent work. Your most recent work, uh, it is a nonfiction work called Dickens and Prince, and it takes two well-known cultural figures who are not often associated together, uh, the 19th century English writer Charles Dickens and the late musician Prince. So can you tell us more about what they have in common and how you came up with this idea? I came up with it uh, when they released the massive box set, Sign of the Times box set, which had something like 75 extra songs on it, um, which for comparison is, I think, more than the Eagles recorded during the 1970s. So uh, Prince had that many extra songs for one album in 1986. And it turned out he was working on two or three different albums at once at the same time, different feel, different voices. He was playing around with things. And I suddenly remember that Dickens used to write two novels at once quite often just because of the demands of serialization. And and I thought, well, it's only those two that could keep projects apart in their head like that. Anyone who's tried to write a novel will know that writing two novels at the same time is pretty impossible, especially when they're as complicated and long as Dickens' novels were. So I started to think about how hard they worked, how much they wrote and, and played, and their deaths. You know, they were, they, neither of them lived to be 60, and I think that work killed both of them, probably. They were superstars right from the very first things that they released. Uh, they both had these poverty-wrecked childhoods, and there were all kinds of coincidences that I thought, uh, would be interesting to write about in an essay form. Yeah. I, I mean, the work ethic just was insane. I can't even imagine. You say that work really uh, killed them both. Um, what do you want readers to take away from that? Uh, <laughs> work hard, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> 
oh, we're all going to go go uh, at some point, right? <laughs> um, I find them incredibly inspiring, both of them. I mean, not, not working until you're dead, but um, I think just the commitment to the craft uh, is something that I find incredibly inspiring. And, you know, with Dickens, he wasn't thinking about posterity. Uh, he was thinking about how to fill a magazine um, and that's how Great Expectations was written, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not always about um, uh, taking five years to craft, craft the paragraph. It's sometimes you've got to hit your deadlines and hope for the best. And there isn't a single Dickens book that is out of print. Each one of them has survived, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years to be classics. Yeah. You know, also several of your novels were adapted as films. Two of those, uh -huh. Fever Pitch and High Fidelity, uh, adapted novels originally set in the UK and changed the setting to the US. So I'm wondering how you feel about your words and characters being changed to an American setting. Well, something like High Fidelity, it was changed because the people who adapted it completely understood the book and they felt that it was about them. And one of the reasons that that book has been successful and endured is that lots of people all over the place think that book is about them. People in Germany and people in England and people in Scotland and people in Chicago. And it's really not about the setting. It's about the feelings. It's about those people's relationship with music. It's about breakups. It's really about living in a, uh, I guess, a first world city. And um, if you get the right people who feel that the book is about them, then it doesn't matter where they want to set it. It has a better chance of being good. And being good is the most important thing to me. Hmm. And I think that makes it great. Yeah. And, you know, adapting uh, these, these films, it, it goes both ways for you. I mean, you've adapted books written by others into screenplays, like uh, An Education in Brooklyn, both of which resulted in Oscar nominations for you. So what was the experience like uh, for you being on the other side of the adaptation? Well, of course, I've, I've learned something from being adapted, um, which is um, keep out is what is what I had learned, really. There, there isn't much you can do to control the process when you're an author. I think authors sometimes have fond ideas that they will be able to appoint the director and, and, and cast it and, and therefore maintain some element of control over the process. But of course, you know, the, the movie might, might require a child actor that you don't know anything about. It might, and it certainly requires a lighting cameraman and it, it requires an editor. And people have paid a lot of money for these things because they're all responsible for how a movie turns out. So once I realised that I couldn't control the quality, I, I was happy just to sell the books to people I trusted and let them get on with it. And the, the authors that I've worked with in that way, they've been pretty much the same, actually. The only thing is some people can be rude and you don't know what's happened to your book for three or four years. No one tells you anything. So I've always tried to make sure that the author knows what's going on when I'm adapting. <laughs> it's important to get that feedback, right? I mean, you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, most, most things take five years to make. And, and, you know, they can be two, three-year stretches where you just don't have a clue what's gone on. Yeah. 
One thing I noticed about the characters in your books is that they all seem to have their quirks and issues. Tell me about those quirks and why you choose to write your characters in that way. Well, I think that mostly what I write about is social comedy with, you know, hopefully it has some heart and some seriousness somewhere in it. But you can't write about people who have their lives together. I mean, you know, if if I were to write a novel about a, a very accomplished hedge fund manager with a happy family, I, I don't see what, what there is to write about there. My my job is done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, perfect. They have no quirks. They have no failures. They have no nothing. If you are going to write about that guy, it has to be the day before something goes catastrophically wrong for him, which might involve his quirks or, or whatever. But um, I prefer writing about people who have messed up in some way. Yeah. Do you think that makes the characters more relatable? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't know anyone who hasn't messed up. So, uh, you know, we've all got our issues. We've all got our relationship failures. We've all got annoying parents or annoying kids or annoying siblings um, who might not be annoying anymore or might be about to get even more annoying. I mean, <laughs> life's, life's a struggle <laughs> for everyone, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, where does the inspiration then for your characters actually come from? A story, uh, mostly. Uh, when I realize that I want to tell a story about this, then a character starts being formed who would respond to that situation in, in particular ways. So I don't think you can start necessarily with just a character. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have some kind of narrative idea and put that character in that narrative. And how much of that, like for you, just comes from observing people? Well, I mean, of course, the most important thing, I think, is to listen to what people say. I like writing dialogue and I like the rhythm of dialogue. And that pretty much comes from just listening. Um, You know, I'll listen on a bus or on a train. I'll, I'll, I'll turn my music off if I think that there's a juicy conversation going on on the other side of the aisle for me but the moment your characters are doing something that could only happen in your work if you saw what I mean that your particular story then they start to develop a life of their own and I don't mean they start to write themselves they don't but if a character turns left instead of right and then goes up some stairs instead of down some stairs he's already doing stuff that takes him on his own journey if you saw what I mean You know, I would imagine empathy plays a big role in your character development as well, especially when writing about a character who's completely different from yourself. Yeah, I think the most important thing for me is that I've I've walked round and round the characters several times. So um, I've, I've never written about anyone who's irredeemable, I don't think, because I don't think people are irredeemable by and large. Even somebody who really gets on your nerves, that person has friends and a spouse, you know, and a life where people do like him or her. Uh, And so it's finding those bits uh, as as well as the bits that are quirky or off-putting that are important. Mm. You know, you use so many different vehicles to write uh, music, film, books. How do you manage to stretch beyond one particular box or another when writing? I mean, do you think this makes your writing more accessible? I don't know about more accessible. I I enjoy 
writing in different media, uh, I always prefer the thing I'm not doing at the moment, you know. <laughs> uh, so if I'm writing a novel, I'd rather be writing a movie and the other way around. Um, and some things just came into being, you know, like I've been writing a column for the Believer magazine in San Francisco for a long time. And I really like the discipline of writing a monthly, well, now it's quarterly column, because most things take a long time to finish. And I like getting something completed. But I, I think my voice is my voice, whether it's in script form or, or, or non-fiction or fiction. I, don't, I can't do a lot about being me, and it doesn't seem to matter what form it takes. Do you feel like, and I, I just have to ask this question, you know, reading is, it's wonderful, but um, what are your thoughts on this sort of moral superiority some people have about reading books? Oh, well, I just think it's rubbish. The reason that people around about my age, I, I, I don't know how old you are, Jade, but an awful lot of it comes from um, having been so bored when we were kids. I mean, England in the... 1970s was just a, a, a terrible, terrible place. <laughs> you know, there was nothing open on a Sunday. There was no television during the day, any day. I read because I would have, you know, jumped out the window if I hadn't read. But my kids don't really read books. They're literate and they're smart, but they don't read books. Mm -hmm. And um, it's because they've had so much to do. There's been so much competition for their time over the years. Um, nor do I think that one kind of book is better for you than another kind of book. I don't think that. I've, I always say when when people say that literature is, you know, morally improving or, you know, teaches you empathy, I always say, have you ever met a book critic? Because those guys, you know, <laughs> there's not much empathy there. And yet they've been reading fiction all their lives. Same with uh, Same with college professors. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. Are they better people than you and me? I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, uh, before we go, I've got to ask a San Diego question. Could you ever see yourself uh, setting a story in San Diego? What would that look like? Uh, I absolutely could see myself setting a story in San Diego. I think it would be a great place for a culture clash, England versus the U.S., relationship story. Wow. I'm looking forward to that story. All right. Author and screenwriter Nick Hornby will be appearing at this year's Writer's Symposium by the Sea on the campus of Point Loma Nazarene University on Friday, February 23rd, 7 p.m. Nick, thank you so much for talking with me today. I appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. All right. To learn more about the event and see a full list of authors appearing at this year's festival, visit our website at kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.